Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being a part of this really fun second season as we were just rolling out one episode after another. It's been so much fun being back on the air with all of you. And I really hope you guys are giving this, uh, giving this show a share, a rate, a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. I could really use your support there. So remember, the show is available on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and its home base on Podbean. And I really hope you guys have been enjoying the show. Really hope you've been taking the ch- to time to take a look at some earlier episodes during the first season. It's been a blast doing this whole show. And it's going to be a really fun episode here. But first, I just want just to touch on one little thing. This is not a spoiler alert, because I did this reading of Ever Upward, part two in the Excelsior journey, back in uh, you know, a couple of months ago when I was working on the audiobook. But there was one, one major sequence that takes place pretty late in the book, where my main character, Matthew Peters, is basically given a full tour of Excelsior's backstory, going all the way back to the beginning of the universe, and then working its way up to revealing what is all about the, uh, what is all about the main villain, Tornatorax. None of that happens. None of that becomes a reality. If I wasn't glued to my television set as a 10-year-old watching season three of Transformers and indulging myself in the five-part miniseries that started that season, Five Faces of Darkness. And it turns out that if I were to tell my 10-year-old self that I would be having a conversation with the writer of that episode, Flint Dilly, who I would later find out was not only the story consultant of Transformers the movie, but also one of the writers of it, he would ask me two things. First of all, he would say, what's a podcast? And then second of all, he would say, prove it. And it's a wonderful thing to have my guest here, Flint Dilly. He is someone who literally wrote your childhood. He has experience in so many great intellectual properties. Transformers, G.I. Joe, Visionaries, Inhumanoids, Dungeons and Dragons, Garbage Pail Kids, the, all, all, so, many more, so many more shows. He has been involved with Sunbow Productions, Marvel, Lucas, just the list goes on and on. And I am so thrilled to have him here because I just finished re- uh, listening to the audiobook of his autobiography, The Games Master, which is coming out later this month. I'm really excited to have him here to talk about this book and also to give some real good insight into that entire journey. In such a very short time, we're going to find out that, uh, that so, mu- so many of these great properties that we all know and love were all really hitting their stride at the same time. And we're going to be discussing that along with a lot of other things. But first, I, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Flint Dilly. Flint, how are you, sir? Oh, just great, George. Great to be on here. Yeah, and I forgot to mention before the show, I'm like 
part way through your book here and thoroughly enjoying myself. So that's so cool. Thank you very much. Yeah. I've now got, I now understand the two worlds. That's how far I am. Yep. And, and it's, it's funny. It's funny you should say that because we, it turns out we have more in common than, than I thought, because while I was listening to the book, the games master, I was, I got to hear how you came up with the name Sagard. That is how you pronounce it, correct? Sagard? Yeah, it's just, yeah, yes. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I had to sign a contract, so we need a name for our character. There you go. And, and I needed a name for the planet, for Excelsior. And I just very shamelessly took the name of the first planet that's mentioned in Star Trek The Next Generation and just switched out a vowel. So that's basically like how that that started so when i heard that i was just like ha ah, look at that that's great to see yeah names, so, are, um, names are tricky yeah people are appalled when they hear that story but uh, names are tricky and you just come up with them exactly and uh, so i'm talking about the book the games master i'm why don't you talk a, a little bit about that before we really get started in, into your journey in writing sure the games master is a book i wrote it's it is a memoir of a very specific period of you know, my life from 1983 to 1987. So it's four years. It's as long as high school or college. And it goes from getting out of film school. I went to USC. I got a master's in cinema. And, mm -hmm. and all the way to in being a complete noob writer and all that. And ends when I get hired by Steven Spielberg and in between to write at the time what, what would grow up to be. And, and in between is all the Sunbow, Dungeons and Dragons, various different novels, Buck Rogers, all that. So it was just this very exciting four years. And, and I'd go to conventions and I'll be answering questionnaires. And finally, I looked at my questionnaire file where I just, it was a Google Doc where I just dragged everything. And I found mm -hmm. out 150 pages and I thought, I might as well make this a book. But yep. and the whole book happened on, on Facebook. That was the other interesting thing about it. I crowdsourced the, the title. I, I said, hey, anybody know an agent? It was, it was just a social <laughs> media experiment. I remember that too. I remember be, being a part of that and just getting really yeah. excited just to be on that ground floor area of this. I was just like, holy crap. This is someone who is who has so much insight about all the things that I grew up watching and loving. And just to know that's coming out in a book form, I was just like, I, I was frying Futurama. I was going to shut up and take my money. I was ready for it. Yeah, so it was, the, pretty, it was really funny. It was like, yeah, it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I'll just use, because uh, I was just, it was part social media experiment, and then people seemed to keep liking the story. So I was like, I, I'll just make a book and found an agent on the, uh, Facebook and found a publisher on Facebook. And yeah, it's, it was an interesting experiment. Oh, this is, this is going to be so much fun. Just to, now I saw on Amazon, I saw a message that the, since I pre-ordered the Kindle version, as well as getting the audiobook, it said that the Kindle version was being pushed back one week to July 21st. Is that correct? I did not. Basically, this is the first time I've heard of it. I, basically, <laughs> I'm just at the effect of this. I, I get the messages the same way you do. Nobody tells me anything. I, right. <laughs> I physically have copies. People have been ordering the books, Amazon, they hide the fact you can buy the paper book and maybe they're too busy delivering other stuff. And people have been ordering it from Rare Bird directly, the publisher. And I like doing that just because you want to give the little guys a chance. Jeff Absolutely. Uh, doesn't need any money this week. So right. anyway, uh, <laughs> he's, he's doing fine. And so I'm in support the little guys. But anyway, yeah, so uh, I believe that comes out the 14th. And I, I guess you're right. The Kindle gets pushed back a week. I have no idea why. 
Yeah, that's weird that they didn't mention that to you. It was just like, oh, by the way, this you know this whole thing that you're waiting on, it's just going to be pushed back just a little bit. Well, this is just such a weird period that people can't get, can't be blamed. It just is a weird period. Where yeah, it is. It, and yeah, and, you know, it just it's COVID life. Yeah, we're definitely on unprecedented times here. So this yep. is uh, this is really an interesting time. So this is actually a, a great time for all of you to go ahead and make sure you get uh, get your hands on a copy of this book, however you get it. It is available on Audible now, but whether you get it, whether you wait a little bit to get it on Kindle or go for the paper, go for the paperback, whatever. Required reading. It's a top top recommendation here from uh, from Excelsior Journeys. Yeah, the audio book, so, by the way, is how I listened to it. I, and I really enjoyed it. What was fun about the audio book was that it, it was really interesting for, uh, for me anyway, to hear some voice other than the one inside my head reading the book. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the narrator, but he did a really solid job with that. I was really job. impressed. Yeah, yeah, I was really happy with that. Considering the fact that I have a guest on after all this time, who has actually worked with Orson Welles, it feels like this is like the news on the march part of Citizen Kane, because now we get to go back to the very beginning of it all. So I am very interested in hearing from you the, what I like to call the lightning bolt moment. There's always that sort of that one major element that makes people turn in, in the direction that they're going to wind up going in, in their lives. And they just point to and just, that's what I want to do. That is wh who I want to be. And that's the kind of life I want to live in. So what was that moment for you? What was that initial lightning bolt moment for you? Oh, man, I, I, that's an interesting question. Okay, I, I, I covered a little bit in the book. I think I tell a story about I graduated. I went to Berkeley for undergraduate. And I graduated and had like literally no idea what I'd do with my life. Now, I'd taken the summer cinema program at USC the summer of my junior year. So it wasn't like getting into TV and movies and stuff like that it was an alien thought. And right at that time, my family had the rights to Buck Rogers, my grandfather's originator. And the TV show was purchased. So I thought, oh, I'll go down and work on the TV show. The world, real world doesn't work like that. And yeah. I just could not break in on the <laughs> TV show. Yeah, nobody wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to. So I, I, I was sitting there. It was probably like February. I probably graduated in June or July. And there was a moment where I thought I was going to law school. And I'm looking at the applications. I'm going, I'm not really going to be a lawyer. And so I flushed that. And I was talking to my father. And, and, and I said, you've known me my whole life. What should I do? And he said, you'll probably end up doing something that doesn't exist now. So I, you just have to prepare for it. That was his advice. Which, in a way, is really good advice. He was absolutely right. That, that was yeah. the kind of interesting thing about it is, yeah, I ended up yeah, designing video games and uh, working in all sorts of mediums that didn't really exist at that moment. And, but film school was a logical thing to do, so I, I went that spring. Nice. Very nice. So after film school, what was it that, that was able to get you launched into this industry? What was it that... Uh, yeah, was it just, yeah, basically, I... I after film school, I had a real agent for a while, but he didn't really get anything to happen. And then I met a guy named Joey Thompson, who I don't really, to this day, really know what he was. He wasn't exactly an agent. He wasn't really a manager. and, and But he was an incredible, what Malcolm Gladwell calls a uh, connector. And Joey, okay. did, we set up a, a meeting with Ruby Spears. Joe Ruby and Ken Spears had a company called Ruby Spears. They had created Scooby-Doo and had their own animation company in the, in the 80s. 
and and they went went into the nineties. And so we, Joey set up a meeting, and I of course took my spec script into Joe Ruby. Just I figured, well, yeah, if Buck Rogers doesn't happen, he can at least look at my writing sample. And at the exact same moment, almost, I'd be like a week apart, Joe Ruby said, called me up and said, hey, I want to bring you in for development. And I didn't really know what that meant because nowhere in film school they talk about mm. what development is, which is interesting because right. most writers spend most of their life in development hell. And, uh, and it was supposed to be a two-week deal that ended up being a multi-year deal. So that was really great. And then, and he said, hey, you ever heard of a guy named Gary Gygax, same Joy Thompson? And I said, yeah, 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 he created Dungeons and Dragons. I know who he is. Well, you want to meet him? And so he <laughs> took me down to, we did a field trip down to the Anaheim Convention Center, which is where BlizzCon happens. Oh, wow. And now, and mm -hmm. I met Gary Gygax and we just got along really well. So at almost the exact same minute, my writing career and my game design career happened that's so cool that is so cool. yeah yeah i mean it, but it really was but remember i had been like slunking around staring at the walls for years probably right. this is 83 it was early 83 and i graduated from college in 77 there were a lot of years yeah there was grad school in between and stuff but there were a lot of years where i wasn't really doing anything so it wasn't like something happened overnight but you were still holding on to that dream though you were wanted to get in get involved in that area in that industry one way or another. So yes, ab absolutely. It's great to stick around. And you just yeah. keep pushing and keep pushing. And, and then when things happen, they, they really happen fast sometimes. Yeah. And it's definitely the perfect example of when it rains, it pours, because yes. it seemed like uh, just when I was reading the book, I, I keep saying reading, when I was listening to the book, and it uh, just, it felt like all of a sudden, everything just really snowballed. Like you were going from one thing to another in a really short amount of time. It was like, what we were saying before, how all of this happened in just like basically the mid eighties, that was pretty this whole period. Yes. And so what was, what was the, when you were over at Ruby Spears, what was there is, was there like a uh, specific project that you were the most proud of? Uh, you know, I probably Mr. T, Mr. T certainly made my career. Uh, do you know Mr. T? Oh yeah. Yep. Oh, I, right. oh yeah. I, I, this was my period. I, I was born in 76. Oh, this okay. Is, all right. Good. Yes. Yeah, so you're right in my, you're sense. right in my wheelhouse here. Okay. All right. Good. You, you never know. I oh, just yeah. well, I thought I'd ask, so I wasn't blabbing on about something. No, I appreciate that you think I'm that young. Just go for it. <laughs> yeah. No, what happened was, yeah, they did a Mr. T show, which was Mr. T and six gymnasts, maybe seven. I can't remember. And uh, a dog solving mysteries. And yeah, it sounds like it's a silly concept now. And the show was, I don't know if you took Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and Scooby-Doo and Eighteen you know, <laughs> uh, Archies and threw it in an ostracizer with Mr. T. That'd be the show. Yeah. And I, it, it sounds silly, but it worked out really well. But yeah, I, and I just, I got very lucky on that show. And Ruby Spears decided to put me under contract and I got to write a bunch of episodes for the network. So that was really the proving ground. Excellent. Excellent. And the, I think that was like around the time that the Mr. T serial was out and that was. He was on A-Team. He'd been in Rocky yeah. 3. He was a very big deal at that moment. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, the same time he was in the main event of the first WrestleMania. So yeah, he's, he was definitely, you definitely picked the right time to, to get into the Mr. T business at that. Yeah. At, yeah. At, it, it was, it was really a lot of fun. It was a great learning ground. And in those days, and probably true now too, 
cartoons are a great were a great place to start because you know, we you got a lot of episodes. It was incredibly restrictive, so it, it forced you to be inventive. You couldn't have a sort of action adventure, but you couldn't really have a lot of action or adventure just because just the program standards were pretty stringent. And but so it's uh, almost like it gives you the creativity though to work your way around that. If they just said, Yeah, blow stuff up, go for it, then you're just blowing stuff up and going for it. You're not it's not exactly. that challenge to find a way around exactly. it. No, it was, it was definitely challenging. And, and he really sort of taught, it, it was just a great writing class. And I was working with Steve Gerber and Marty Fasco and of course, Joe Ruby. And yeah, that was really great. But yeah, the real lesson for any aspiring writers, a little bit the book is a book about writing, being a writer, is that when it, it happens really fast. Wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely true there. While you were working with Ruby Spears, you got to meet Gary Gygax, like you said before. And all of a sudden you find yourself in this other world, literally with Dungeons and Dragons. And so it's yes. you're dealing with writing, game designing, and being in this fantasy realm. Now, was that like, was that too much of a, was that a big jarring kind of thing going from the, this Mr. T, this Mr. T world into Dungeons and Dragons, where it's like you have this whole mythology that you're all. No, for me, it was just all one big. It was it was one big long adventure. Yeah, mm -hmm. they the projects were. I mean, I, I literally in the same day would you know, get done doing uh, at that that point, Mr. T, and then drive over and work on the books for Dungeons and Dragons. Oh man, that's. Considering everything, the, the way that all the different stuff that we kids who were raised in the 80s, we had so much great stuff to play with, so, much, so many great things to read, and all of a sudden all these shows are coming out that are, allow, that are giving us like all this great stuff, all this great mythology and everything. So while you're working, on, while you're working with Dungeons & Dragons, what was it about that realm that made it so appealing? I, I'd always... I, I remember one time you know, during my what am I going to do with my life period, I walked by a game store in Monterey and I was saying, if I could do anything, I'd design, I'm seeing the Avalon Hill games and all that. I'd design mm -hmm. games. But yeah. there was, they didn't have game schools back then. I, I had no idea how to begin, how to learn how to design games. Yeah. And so it was unbelievably fortunate that I don't think anybody did. I, I ran into Gary. And so, so I viewed that as like its own kind of grad school. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was, so you had th this kind of, the kind of role-playing games that, that Dungeons and Dragons were. Did, have you, did you get to work at all like on the creation of any sort of video games or was that just something else entirely? I had one really weird early foray into video games and that was, a fr okay, RCA had a thing called the Laserdisc at that point. Do you remember that? Oh or? yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. And Laserdisc looked like yeah, you know, vinyl records, except they were silver. Mm -hmm. And they had a, a, one of the weirdest pieces of technology ever, but they had a thing that would kick the needle to prescribe places. And so you actually could do branching interactive games. Oh, wow. Sort of like you can make a decision to go like in, go left, press this, go press this. Correct. Basically, it was your own adventure on the screen. Yeah, that is exactly what it was. It was a choose your own adventure on the screen. And a friend of mine set up a deal with them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we had no idea what to do with it. But he had a friend in his town that owned a bar. So he said, okay, we'll do a game called Lounge Lizard. The real story is more <laughs> complex than this. I'm giving yeah. you the version of 
And so uh, buy the book for the whole thing, guys. I'm telling you, buy the book. Yeah, I'll just I'll give you the trailer on it. So we went off and did we, his girlfriend or an identical twin were these girls you're trying to pick up in a bar, which was great. And these are like extremely successful models in New York that year. But what was yeah. funny about it was that they they're identical twins, so it's it's you can't tell them apart. So it seems like you only have one actress. So we had to figure out how to work around that. But yeah, so Lounge Lizard was the first time I was ever paid and actually did a game, and we did a video shoot, and we were partway into production, and a couple of things happened, but mostly RCA went out of the Laserdisc business, mm-hmm. and so Lounge Lizard is sitting on a VHS tape somewhere as a font. Oh man. But, but that's a big part of what the uh, the book's about is like all these like sucker chases and fool's errands and silly missions you go on. And it ends up, weirdly enough, be always being worth it. Yep. But usually they, they come to naught. They, they're just they're a waste of time. You feel like a, schm- a schmuck. And then, <laughs> it's, oh, I'm glad I did that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's so cool. So we have the, so you're working in, in games. And then all of a sudden you mentioned that you were working with Steve Gerber. Now, for those who are the uninitiated, Steve Gerber is the is responsible for Howard the Duck. But he was also involved in a lot of stuff that, uh, that we all really got into as kids, including G.I. Joe and Transformers. Was Steve Gerber like you're in to Sunbow? Yes. Okay. I met Steve Gerber uh, on Mr. T at Ruby Spears. And Steve, at that point, and more from a comic book guy to an animation guy, because first of all, I think he really liked it. Second of all, it just paid a lot, paid very well. And uh, yeah, so Steve at this point is now, you know, a really prominent animation writer. And he's hired by Sunbow away from from Ruby Spears to story edit G.I. Joe. And so that's, that was, is the uh, Steve Gerber origin story. Nice, nice. So, so uh, yeah, and so yeah, what happened was he was story editing the show, and he call, he calls me up and he said, "Look, I've fallen behind." Steve was maybe the best sort of writer and editor there was, but he was mm-hmm. not necessarily the most punctual. Uh, and you know, they asked me yeah, if I'd come ghost story. I wasn't ghost because everybody knew I was doing it. And right. I said, yeah, great. And that's how I got on G.I. Joe. That's so cool. So was that the transition from, from Ruby Spears, TSR and everything right into Sunbow? Was there any other well, well, so, I mean, uh, In between, there was Lucasfilm. And that was this yes. yeah, definitely. epic yeah. fail that, you know, yeah, you have to read about it in the book. But uh, yeah, that was like, I'd had this really great run and everything seemed to be going perfectly. And, and then there was that. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was... That appeared to be the worst setback in the world. And in the end, it probably was a good thing, but at the time it did not appear to be a good thing. And now, was that during the time, I'm, so, I'm sorry, was that during the time when they had like, uh, I think it was like droids, Ewoks? That like is those, correct. Those kind of shows? Okay. That is, right. that is correct. I was working on droids. Paul Dini was doing e- Ewoks. And we worked on each other's shows, but yeah, by and large, that mm-hmm. would be the short strokes way of putting it is that I was doing droids and he was doing Ewoks. And another name to definitely drop, Paul Dini, who is responsible oh, yeah, well, a major element. Yeah, yeah Paul's just a total contemporary. He started Ruby Spears right after I did. Now, he was way ahead of me in animation writing. He already yeah, worked on uh, Masters of the Universe. and That's right. I forgot he was working Thunder. on that. I think he wrote a Dungeons and Dragons episode. Mm-hmm. He'd done a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah and this... Yeah, this is before he, he made the foray into 
working doing so much great work for Warner Brothers as oh yeah I mean, Batman the animated all the series. cartoons and yeah. then the Batman stuff he did is as good as any Batman anybody's ever done. Oh, I'll say amen to that, especially considering the fact that he, he was responsible for the creation of Harley Quinn. So you know, yes, the fact that he does. was able to yeah. create such a great part of the whole Batman universe, that's a huge thing right there. Oh, um, yeah. No, Paul, is, Paul has just had an epic career spanning from really the late 70s to now. That, that's epic. Yeah, it really is. So Steve Gerber contacts you. And you come aboard with, with G.I. Joe. Now, was this the time that they were, by this point, they had already done the five-part miniseries that started at the Mass Device, right? That, then, that's correct, yes. Yeah. And then they had the next five-part of The Revenge of Cobra with the Weather Dominator. That's one that a lot of people, hold in a lot of people's hearts. And then yep. you have the, the five-part that started up the whole syndicated season with the pyramid of darkness and then going on from there. So what was, which, was there like a particular episode that you were brought into uh, to I, I work on? I was trying to remember when, exactly when I came in. I'll tell you some of the early ones is Roger Slifer, who would later mm -hmm. end up working at Sunbow mm -hmm. uh, and being just a, a major part of all of our lives. Roger Slifer wrote a thing called The Germ, and I remember working on that pretty early on. Christy Marks wrote, I'm trying to remember what Christy's first one was. I remember it was Menacing the Flag was basically the plot line. And what was mm -hmm. fascinating about Christy is this was maybe the first one that story edited. And I read the script and I said, Steve, I, I, you guys don't even have to pay me for this. I, it's a perfect script. There's really nothing I would change. You, It may not be the vision you're going for with G.I. Joe, but the episode is perfect and complete within itself. And it was. And Steve said, yeah, Jay Bacall told me the same thing this morning. So, <laughs> you know, so at that point I realized I thought like the Sunbow guys. And, mm -hmm. and I think it was a couple months later, they said, hey, we want to put you on staff and make you a producer. Yeah, so, yeah I probably edited five or six scripts in between. Nice. And, Very and cool. So, so I was on G.I. Joe. You remember me and talk to me, me more about Transformers, but the truth is I was on G.I. Joe almost as long as I was on Transformers. And or, or certainly before Transformers, I don't know that it was as long. Yeah. Because even after I got moved on to Transformers, I'd still you know do G.I. Joe and sometimes edit scripts and wrote a, wrote a few and we got in trouble. So, the, so during that time, also I feel like we, we just need to take a, just like a step back really and talk a little bit about Sunbow itself because Sunbow was responsible for so much yes. great material during that time. They started out as a, they were, just, they started out as an advertising company. Well, they were always were an advertising company. They were Hasbro's ad agency. Mm -hmm. and, and so they did all of you know, Hasbro's toy commercials and all that. Yeah, and I'm saying this in the least cynical way possible because, you know, frankly, it was one of the best creative environments I've ever been in. Had more yeah. creative freedom and support as much as anything I would ever have again. But, yeah, we were making half-hour toy commercials, really. Yeah, unabashed. That's what the shows were. They just they just look like shows, which is a brilliant marketing idea because all of a sudden Hasbro can have their competitors advertising on their shows. And so Griffin McCall was the ad agency, and in mm -hmm. some weird way, I was an ad executive who just happened to be making TV shows. I, they rarely involved me in the ads, but it happened. There were times when I'd be back in New York, I'm all of a sudden trying to figure out ad stuff. And what was cool about Sunbow is they just just assumed you could do it, whatever it was. Yeah. So it was, a, it was the ultimate place to learn and be. 
there was yeah, there's definitely just looking back at those episodes because I I got the whole GI Joe set on DVD, I got the whole Transformers set on DVD, and so it was especially with GI Joe. I always like I've always gravitated to Transformers from the very beginning, but at the same time, looking back at some of those episodes of GI Joe, they were really deep. They were very they were dealing with some really heavy themes. Oh, yeah. Um, you... yeah. What happened was this, was Ron Friedman wrote the two miniseries that started it off. Right. And he yeah, really made the perfect... Big kudos stuff. to Ron Friedman, by the way. Big kudos. Yeah. Like, oh. you know, yeah, definite kudos to, to him for Ron doing... Ron is great, things. and Ron set the whole course for G.I. Joe. And if you look at Ron's episodes, you know, it was all there. You had the, the amazing devices, you had the military stuff, you had the bad guys, you had pretty much how the stories would go. And he laid such good groundwork that it let Steve and I go do the more exotic, complex things. Yeah. Were there certain episodes from that run that you were pointed to or just, I want, like, I want that one on my resume kind of feeling? Well, yeah, yes. I'm very proud of that season, mm -hmm. that, that season. And just the sheer enthusiasm of Steve. I remember he, he, he was pitching me Really early on, he was pitching me uh, Red Rocket's Glare, which I think might have also- uh, That was a fun episode. That they, was a real- they, yeah, <laughs> so You have all these hamburger stands and they have these rockets. Warheads, yeah. They're really, they're really warheads. It was, yeah, I remember that was so much fun. Like once you're really dialed into to the, to the tone of, of the show, so many of those great episodes, they wind up being a whole lot of fun. And then you come across some episodes like Worlds Without End and there's no place like Springfield, which- go so deep and and actually give a lot of like nightmarish type of imagery did you have you were there similar episodes like that that you'd worked no on? place like springfield was oddly enough was one of the very few times i edited steve because it oh, was wow. a multi-part episode yeah and steve wrote it i edited him and and what that really was both steve and i were you know, super fans of a show called the prisoner and oh, what, yeah. that, what that really was us kind of feeling like we could do the prisoner in G.I. Joe. And we knew we were taking it about as far as a certain kind of science fiction as you could take G.I. Joe. But we were really excited about it. And I, oddly enough, I just rewatched that one. For some reason, it was available on streaming the day I happened to say, hey, I, I rewatched some of these episodes. Oh. Uh, and what an amazing piece of work. And that's one of those things. It really where, was. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, uh, you wouldn't normally believe that it even existed. It's like, how did yeah. that get made? Uh, you know, how, uh, you know, why, a little kid why, is holding a bazooka. Yeah. Why is that in the world? And, and it was animation, but it was about as sophisticated as science fiction as you see on TV. And because in those days, there's no digital, budgets are different, and television programming was really, it was still the network model where you wanted least offensive programming, right? You wanted you right. want to do shows that people would, nobody in the house would say, I won't watch this. And so yeah. by the time by the time you're doing stuff like that, that was one of the first times you could just say, hey, we're doing this show really for our fans. Yeah. And, and that's what's great what, about oh, it. But yeah, that's about as far as you could go, you could take anything on TV at that exact And such great work. That's, I, I did not know that Steve Gerber was the one that wrote that. That's terrific. Yeah, so yeah. The, um, yeah, that was just a really interesting one because at that point, I was probably the associate producer and he was a story editor. And, mm -hmm. and now, I, I mean, that having been said, nobody, you know, really took seriously the idea they were editing Steve Gerber because he was just so good. But yeah. nevertheless, you need somebody to edit it. So you need somebody to ride along and plot it with you and all that. And, and that, that's an episode that uh, 
I'm particularly proud of, even though I did not write it. I have only limited reason to be proud of it. I thought it was a great piece of work. But you were involved in it too. Like, oh, that's so it, good. Yes. That was such a great episode. I need to rewatch that one too. I haven't seen it in a while, but it was, it's, really, it is, it's one it of those that sticks with you. Yep. Yeah. It, re- it really does. So speaking of things that stick with you, sorry, sorry to cut you off right, right there, but um, it definitely makes me think about um, what kinds of characters you had in the G.I. Joe universe to play with. So with that one, you had Shipwreck, who at first, when, uh, when he first came in, he was you know, just, he had tried to, to get involved with Lady J very briefly, but at the same time, like he was a goofy character that yes. all of a sudden was put into this very, very serious type of story. So it felt like you guys really were able to open up and have a lot of fun with a lot of these characters. Was there anyone oh, in particular? Yeah, absolutely. We're, I mean, Shipwreck was always, was always Buzz's character. We all had our characters. So there were the characters we felt a proprietary interest in. Mm-hmm. And how Shipwreck ended up, it, it was perfect. But that yeah. was, that Buzz, Shipwreck was Buzz's guy. Yeah, and, and, Buzz, uh, and Buzz in question is Buzz Dixon. Who, um, Buzz Dixon, sorry, um, yes. Yeah, uh, it's okay. Just to throw out to the listeners, by all means, get the uh, make sure you get the special edition DVD of GI Joe the movie, so you can listen to Buzz Dixon and do the full commentary. It's fantastic, very informative. Yeah. Oh yeah, it very yeah, it's very because because that was like I was hardly involved really in in GI Joe the movie. Maybe I was in a couple meetings, but I, at that point, I was pretty Transformers. Yeah. So anything but you want the, to know about that movie, I talked to Buzz. Oh yeah, definitely. And hey, any chance that I can would be would be, would be terrific. So, we're, when when we were talking when uh, to mention the characters, was there anyone in particular that you felt that was just like, oh, I get to play with this character that you that really stuck out for you? I, and, and I think you'd probably guess who my favorite character was. Who I, I kept promoting and, and all that. Obviously, it's Flint. So and it, so. so so you were saying before that he was your namesake. Did they? specifically name him after after you or was that just a coincidence well what I, I, it, it's whatever story you want to believe when joe and tom were hiring me they, this is what joe mccall is a very funny guy he was saying they're telling me they wanted me to be an associate producer and joe said and we named a character after you so you have to take the job <laughs> i don't know whether that's true or not larry Hammond did most of that stuff but then again griffin mccall would have had to approve the names and yeah they certainly knew about me but i and my guess is that maybe they thought, oh, yeah, it's a cool name. We'll use it. I don't think they really named the character after me, but I spread that story around whenever I can. Absolutely. <laughs> I would. <laughs> that and, was the and, case. And, and believe me, when I got there, I did everything in my power to promote him as much as I could. Meanwhile, Buzz would be doing stuff like having him peeling potatoes in the background. And stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And I, know, and I noticed that like Flint always seemed to get involved in some of the more deeper episodes. Like he was the big, the, the big character in charge in Worlds Without End when they got shot to the parallel universe. That was, I've, I've noticed it like, obviously Duke had his moments. I've never seen a character go into a coma more times than Duke, but especially for a kid's show. But uh, but it seemed like he, Flint was the one that really got his hands dirty in some of those deeper episodes. Well, yeah, what it was, what was cool about the show was Duke and Flint had slightly different functions. And so you put them in different kinds of stories. But yeah. Duke was more kind of the straight military guy. And so mm-hmm. you tend to put him in those stories. And Flint was more the kind of spy guy. And yeah. so you put him in those kind of stories, if that makes any sense. It does, yeah. Yeah. Because you gotta have someone you gotta have someone who was who would be out in the trenches because General Hawk hadn't come hadn't come about yet. He was still in another season 
in a way. So when you have when you have all, all these characters, you obviously also have the voices that bring them to life. What was it like working with with those actors? Oh yeah, the actors were great. We had a troop of actors that really worked on all of certainly all of our action shows. We had a few yeah. unique people for each show, but by and large, a lot of them was the same people, and you know, that wasn't an accident. We Sunbow paid very well, and we got the best people in the business. And then they were just great. And I still see those guys at dinners and stuff like that and at the conventions. And they're just great guys. But they, you, if you look at the cast list, you'll see a lot of, a lot of the same people crossed our shows because they're, they're really good and you wanted to work with them again. Oh, absolutely. And there was so many, and so many great, so many great actors. I remember hearing a story from one of the other writers on Transformers. And he said that whenever they, whenever an episode was written, they would always make sure that uh, the, whoever the lead character was, they always made sure that the other characters that that same actor voiced would be featured in there to reduce the amount of actors that had to go. So that was, yeah, we had a good budget, but we had a budget. So yeah, you would want to, you'd want to cluster the characters. And yeah, right. because usually what we would do is we would always have the main characters who are always in there. And you'd, you'd pretty much stick around with the family. There were episodes where this was not true, certainly, because we tried to vary it, vary it a lot. But mm -hmm. it, you, you would certainly have, most often, either Duke or Flint, sometimes both of them, either Lady J or Scarlet, and other major Joes. And, mm -hmm. and that, but we also had to promote the minor characters. But Because right. remember, we had 135 characters or something in the show. Yeah. So you have to promote the little guys too. So what we would do is we try to cluster the actors as best we could because we, we liked working with them and they got used mm -hmm. to working with us. And I'm not sure that we were necessarily the easiest people in the world, world to work with. We had to take advantage of the fact, <laughs> take the, the people who liked us and were in fact the most talented. Yeah. And so, so one, last, uh, one last question real quick before we go over to the other part of Sunbow that I'm really anxious to, to talk about. When you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Larry, uh, Larry Hama, have, did you work with him at all, like on the show? Only indirectly. I, I'm not sure I ever met Larry Hama until years later at a convention. Yeah, I, I, and yeah, it was pretty, yeah, Larry Hama would do his stuff really early on. I think he worked a lot directly with Hasbro. Yeah. You know, and he would, yeah. He, and now once again, there are exceptions to all of these rules, right. but he would pretty much name the characters. It's somebody at Hasbro would come up with the design or Larry would come up with them. I was not there when that happened mm -hmm. and, and write a little blurb on who the character was. Now we were never obligated to, to stick to those blurbs. They, they were very understanding that we were working in a different medium and, and we had to balance our shows. And, and that was the one thing that was great about it. But Larry Hama's work was obviously, everybody knows that. It was incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, absolutely. It incredible stuff. Yeah. yeah. Any, anyone who's picked up one of the Marvel comics that he had written, I think he wrote the whole run uh, of over at Marvel. If Very I'm not possibly. I, I don't even know. Because the truth is, a lot of that, the comics and all that at the time, were pretty mm -hmm. invisible to us. Yeah. I was probably the only person on the team who wasn't really at first a comic book guy. I mean, that just, I was probably the only person around who was a game more than a comic book guy. Everybody was more informed. Now that would change and I would obviously learn a lot about it because yeah. I was hanging around with everybody else. But, you know, so, so the comics were invisible to, to me. We just, there wasn't time to coordinate or anything like that. I mean, we were delivering, I don't know what, 65 episodes a year. And that does yeah. just doesn't leave you a lot of time to 
oh, I think I'll check out that comic book and see how they handle that, or that character. <laughs> that doesn't work that way. Yeah. So the, uh, so the other major property that, that Sunbow was working with at that time is, was also, def- also having to deal with, like you said, with the comic being very separate, with some of the characters having different, different motivations and everything. I think, I think the, biggest, uh, the biggest difference between, between the comic version of Transformers and the TV one is, for me, it's always Shockwave, because Shockwave is this cold, calculated, real, real harsh character in the comics. And then in the show, he's very much like the, just the steward of Cybertron. Speaking of, so speaking of Transformers, what was it about, what was it about Transformers that got you shifted over to that side? Nothing about it got me shifted over, Joe and Tom shifted me over. Because I was like, perfectly happy working on, working on G.I. Joe, just loving it, great show. G.I. Joe was always pretty effortless. Mm-hmm. And one day, Joe and Tom, I can't remember whether it was Joe or Tom, was probably Tom, he'd usually tell you the stuff he, he didn't know, they didn't know whether you wanted to hear. And, and one day they just said, look, we need you. It was Tom, because I remember him saying, we'd like you to move over to Transformers and give it the edge that, that you've been giving to G.I. Joe. I, I never heard mm-hmm. the phrase edge before, that's why I remember it. And I figured out pretty quickly what he meant. But it's, oh, okay. And I moved over to Transformers and Doug had been doing, Doug Booth had been doing Transformers. And I think part of it is what they knew is they wanted to change the show a lot. Mm -hmm. And Doug was was very close with the story editors and he was much more experienced than I was and knew a lot more people. And and knew that it could be, there there could be political issues and they figured they'd they'd throw me into it. And Transformers, uh, and what's funny is I probably did equal amounts of work on the two shows. And I love both of them. I mean, they're both just fundamental to my life. But right. I, I would say Transformers was always harder. G.I. Joe, I just intuitively knew how to do it. And it, you could just figure it out. Transformers, I always had to think about it. Like always this- had to work yeah. at it. It never came easily. And But there, that doesn't necessarily mean you end up with a worse result. It just means it was more work. Yeah. And so you have this, uh, so you're basically like in this whole other toy box, you can say, getting to deal with, uh, with this, all this different backstory. Because I've noticed that like during that, uh, during that second season, that's when things really opened up because all of a sudden they just threw, Hasbro was throwing a whole bunch of new characters into the mix. Was there, was there the pressure to just keep up with Hasbro? Because it seemed like during that time, 85, 86, they were just churning one character after another out. It was insane, the amount of well, that, yeah, that was productivity. Because we'd keep... Now, the thing is, I hadn't been on it the season before, so I didn't have any big emotional attachment to any of the particular characters. But there, there was no denying that there was a lot of... There were, we were, in those days, you'd get faxes, right? Yeah. And yeah, they had a fax machine, and they'd send you a fax and say, oh, we're, well, we're discontinuing, you know, Ashtray, and we're using Dipstick, or your real character names. And so, okay, here comes Dipstick. And, <laughs> and you just they start deciding, okay, I'm writing for Dipstick now. And, and that's pretty much all the ceremony on it. Now, as I said, I had less of a dog in the fight than anybody else just because I was I, I didn't know the care I didn't have I didn't know the characters and didn't yeah wasn't as attached to them as a lot of the other people were but yeah that was how it worked dipstick is uh it's dipstick today and that's it, does that make any sense when I explaining that yeah absolutely yeah because I I remember there were there were specific characters that really got their spotlight in in that very much in this in the same vein as G.I. Joe, but at the same time, like they, there seemed to be like a lot more attention paid to other characters as they were really becoming prominent. I think the biggest, the biggest example 
would be, I think it was halfway through season two when they had that two-parter, the key to Vector Sigma, where they brought in both the aerial bots and the Stunicons. So that's 10 characters right there that are- David Wise or Beth Warrington? I'm trying to remember who, I, I confused two different episodes. Who wrote that one? I, I know David Wise wrote War Dawn. That was the right. one that goes back Wise to wrote the, a lot of stuff. He was like, yeah. he was season, season one and probably halfway through two. He was a principal writer and did a lot of the stuff people love the most. Yeah. yeah, in season three, it was just a different bag, and 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 really, what I was brought in to do is they wanted the reason they wanted more edge is the show was losing to to a show called Go Butts at the time, or it was was really going harder. They were, Go Butts. Yeah, I knew they were they were in the big fight, but I didn't know that uh, that they were that there was an actual that there was like an actual fight there, like between them. No, no, but that that was a competition, and your, yeah. your job is to defeat the competition at some level. Well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so no, the, yeah. so during that time when you were really getting involved with, uh, with, those, with those characters, were there anyone in particular that just made you really want to latch onto them? So the main characters, obviously, how do you not like Optimus and all that? But that was all these shows that we didn't know this at the time, but I now know this to be true, is all these shows fairly early on develop their set of characters that work and, mm -hmm. and that the audience wants to see. And yeah. Yeah, and that's just true. That's just the way it works. And so we had to balance that, but it was a really good thing with the new characters they're constantly putting in. Yeah. And so you, you want to get the old guys in there that everybody wants to see and the new guys. And it's really good because the new guys always kept the show fresh. Yeah. And you, yeah, like characters like Blaster, he was, he became a favorite really quickly. I still remember the, that, that great episode where, where Blaster and Soundwave finally got to face off against each other. I remember being really excited watching that episode when I was a kid. I was just like, oh, this is going to be so much fun. Yeah, you always know it's like a Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow. You, you want to see that fight. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and part of it is when you talk about Shockwave, part of it was that he was a season one character, I believe. Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. Yeah, from the, he was there from the first episode, yeah. And part of what, and I never really thought about it or articulated it this way before, part of what was happening in that period was these kind of cartoons were going from being children's entertainment mm -hmm. to entertainment for, for a, a, an older and more sophisticated audience. You, you don't yeah. want to lose the kids, but we wanted to be the show. I've said this before, it's in the book too, so I'm not, it's not some big secret. But, mm -hmm. but this all happened during a recession. And so we knew that a lot of dads were home watching the shows with their kids. Yeah. And so we wanted to do a show dad could watch and wouldn't be just wincing and, and miserable. And the kids would watch. Shockwave being a season one character was played probably in more of a season one kind of a way. Whereas some of the other characters, we played them a little bit older and more, more sophisticated. But a character who debuted in the show season one probably was was more likely to be treated as a younger kind of character. Yeah, I get, yeah, I get that. Almost like how the Dinobots work. It was like the Dinobots almost like as the show progressed, they basically just took a step back and were almost like pets of the Autobots. Yes. Uh, now, later on in the comics, they become, and especially like what, what Chris Metzen and Olivia Ramondelli and I were doing with IDW, they're very different than that. They were yeah. also too, I think we thought of them as kind of comic relief. And in a good way. And we thought of them as being, you'd be laughing at these goofballs and it's three <laughs> stooges, but they're dinosaurs. So, what, so, treated them. so as the season is progressing, I remember, you You're know, being, two uh, yeah, season two. I, I just remember as that's going, 
And this is like around April, May or something like that. All of a sudden I start seeing, I start seeing little bumpers right at the end of the episode saying, and coming this summer, Transformers, the movie. Correct. Which had my eyes like just, they were like anime style character. Like all of a sudden, like they were just, it was very much a, a moment of, okay, I am there for that. I don't care how it's, how it happens. I am going to be there for that. And thankfully I was there for that because my, my uncle actually called up my father and he told him, don't take George to go see Transformers the movie. I'm going to take him myself. And oh, that's great. I didn't know that he was, I didn't even know that he was really invested. In, I don't even think he really was. He just saw it as a means of get, getting to get me out of the house or something and going to do something with me. So yeah, going about, to do something with you. Yeah, of course. It's yeah. Your yeah, exactly. Well, and and, and, uh, and uh, that's what he was looking forward to doing. Yeah. And so and two weeks or so after it came out. We hit our goal. Yeah. If he secretly enjoyed taking you to the movies. Yeah. Yeah. He was looking forward to it. And I remember during the, the car ride over there, I was just giving him like just the basic breakdown of what the show was, who the characters were. And in 2020 hindsight, it's a good thing I did because it really just drops you in very Star Wars yes. episode four style. Except like with, in, in this case, everyone has already seen episodes one through three. Everyone's already gone through the first two seasons. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing it was Victor Caroli just saying it is the year 2005. I'm like, okay. What <laughs> so, happened? Yeah, it was 1985 I'm, in the show two weeks ago. And then the next line, the treacherous Decepticons have conquered the Autobots home planet of Cybertron. I'm like, what? <laughs> And, and, so, and you know what the question of the hour is with everybody that asks me now the book's coming out and people ask me yeah. questions is what happened in between? Is yeah. there a lot of filling in to do with what happened between, because what do we really know? You use, you use it as a, you can puzzle it out, but mm -hmm. those would be really good stories for somebody to tell. That would, that would actually be a lot of fun. I know there was, uh, there, there have been some Star Trek, you know, books that have tried to bridge that gap between the five-year mission and the motion picture. So that would be, that would actually be a pretty fun series to see. Oh, I, I think so. Yeah. It's the fall of Cybertron. That's really what, what it is. It's what got the, what got, what makes our way to that, that, to that movie and then kicking off from there. So exactly. how did Cybertron fall? And what was, I was talking about this you know, today with the guy, everybody seemed to know Ultra Magnus. What was he doing before that? Or for that right. matter, what about the Shrike Bats of Dramadon? It's funny you should say that because there's a character in my second Excelsior book, Ever Upward, who drops references since she is an ambassador from DNAP4. So she's been to all these different planets. And she basically does what Cup does. She you know, just says, this reminds me of, of this. But I couldn't resist. I had to actually take a couple of those planets that Cup mentioned and drop those in there. So she had also been there as well. So what was So you have all of a sudden this project coming up. Now, from what I understand, Ron Friedman did the first couple of drafts, and then Correct. has, and then then Sunbow was I looking I at drafts. Okay, all of that is is really. Let me put it this way: if somebody knows that stuff, that somebody's not me. I, I, what I know is the first thing I saw was a draft from Ron Friedman that I believed was the first draft, but th that is not necessarily true. That's just what I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it just I would hear vaguely somewhere off in the radio chatter. Transformed, and but that was <laughs> we were doing sixty-five episodes. We didn't have time to think about that stuff. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? It would just, there just wasn't time to, to worry about the Transformer movie. I didn't deal with it in any way until it showed up on my doorstep. Wow. Wow. And so... And, and it showed up in the form of Jay Bacall appearing in Los Angeles at my apartment saying, okay, we got work to do. Yeah. And this is not, I do not want to leave any impression here that anybody thought Ron Friedman did anything less than an excellent job because he did an excellent job. Yeah. You know, what the issue was, in, like any first draft, you know, it, 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 he, would, it was, he was trying to give everybody everything they wanted. Mm-hmm. And not only is that kind of magical thinking, but it's unachievable, but, but he came damn close. And what, so what we had was we had this, you know, wild array of images and exciting stuff that now had to be turned into a movie. But yeah. you know, none of this is Ron's fault. That's what I'm trying right. to get across here. Oh, yeah. uh, he, he, I'm sure he got a laundry list of stuff. He has a wild imagination. Mm-hmm. Gave us a warehouse of the stuff that would become Wayless Transformers. And basically gave us this Lego set, and we used a lot of it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, Jay and I spent a week then writing a thing that is now lost to history, unless it's in my closet somewhere. I'll go clean it out. But it is a thing called The Secret of Cybertron. And that was yes. the version Jay and I did. Yeah. When when we when I got to that part in the book, I was just so like, all right, here we go. And I was so excited to hear and, and any sort of like backstory of Transformers the movie, I am 100% dialed into. And I actually found out something really interesting since we were talking about G.I. Joe the movie just a little while ago. But Buzz Dixon dropped into the commentary that originally Duke was set to die and in that, and that's what prompted Hasbro and Sunbow to basically say, oh, look at that. Let's kill Optimus Prime. And all of a sudden that wound up getting rolled into the Transformers mythos. And then the movie comes out and you get that sort of uh, backlash by the fans and then they which prompted them to back off of killing duke and just putting him in another coma with that was the do you remember if the ron any of the ron friedman drafts had optimus dying in those oh i think optimus was dying from the beginning i i don't know here's the deal i i know almost nothing about the gi joe movie there was right. never a moment i it doesn't make entire sense to me that, that deciding to kill Optimus was a result of deciding to kill Duke. I, that just, mm-hmm. I think Optimus at that point, the whole purpose of the movie was to kill off the 84 product line or 85 product line and bring in 86. Yeah. So that was the purpose. And I think you know, dramatically they knew, they thought it would be dramatic. I, didn't, I don't think they knew it would be traumatic to kill Optimus. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I remember it was it was much more on the traumatic end of things. I still remember that first uh, the first attack on the shuttle at the beginning of the movie when Braun, Prowl, Ironhide, and Ratchet are laid to waste, and that that really just kind of had me sitting up at the edge of my seat. This ten year old me, just thinking, okay, like stakes are raised. This is good. I'm into it. Let's see what happens. And I'm, I think I was in the minority on that because I know that there were a lot of fans that were really kind of traumatized by seeing basically their whole toy box getting laid to waste. Uh, no, I, I, and rightfully, I totally <laughs> understand where they were coming from. That It was a major decision, but I don't think at that point, and remember, this is in 1986, and yeah. nobody ever really done anything like this before. So I don't think at that yeah. point we were particularly, we thought that it would have the response that it did. We thought we were, we thought that people were cared, and we were happy that people cared. I mean, once if we killed off our really important character because we were bummed out about killing him 
and nobody yeah. cares. That'd be bad. But we didn't know they were going to care as much as they did. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, I I remember hearing like the stories of Peter Cullen reading the reading the script and seeing that that Optimus dies, and this is like pages after he finds out that Ironhide dies. So and yeah, that was yeah, like, that's, two, that's, two major that's, characters that's all of a sudden. If you're a voice actor and your character gets killed, that's not a that's not a great uh, day for you. Yeah, exactly. So the so speaking of voice actors, all of a sudden, like when I'm I'm this again ten year old me watching this, and all of a sudden I'm seeing the names Eric Idle, Judd Nelson, Leonard Nimoy, Robert Stack, Lionel Stander, Orson Welles, and of course Jamashita as Blur, and just seeing like all these new, very recognizable names coming in. And this is before Disney went ahead and uh, picked up on that. So what was it like basically bringing in all these other outside people into this toy box? What was it like working with them? Oh, it was great. I, I, what was interesting about it was that these were needs for people I'd grown up with, obviously. I thought that yeah. was just great. I, for me, oddly enough, the coolest, I, I had met Orson Welles before when mm-hmm. Gary Gygax was trying to talk him into being the Dungeon Master in a Dungeon Dragon movie. Oh, that would have been cool. Well, well I, I'd, I'd almost totally forgotten the meeting, except Gary mentioned it in his, in, in, it was in his blog. And after he died, I was rereading his blog. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the meeting we had with Orson Welles. And I, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I, I, my memory had been so blown out by actually working with him on the Transformer movie. But mm-hmm. the guy that really excited me was Robert Stack. Because, like, when I was a kid, I used to love the Untouchables. And if I was particularly good, my mother would let me stay up and watch the Untouchables with Robert Stack. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, so and, of course, was, the, and, of course, the voice of Unsolved Mysteries as well. So, yeah. The voice of Unsolved Mysteries. Well, there's the funny thing about Robert Stack is Robert Stack was the one said, I'm kind of nervous about this. Like, I've never really done voiceover before. And he would go on to be one of the defining voices of early cable TV. Absolutely. And then, and also uh, film fans know him very well as Captain Rex Kramer from Airplane. Yep. And, and so, yeah, that's, and just, and hearing that voice and everything, and he gave, he, did a really solid job as Ultra Magnus. I was really, oh, was I was great. really happy with I mean, that. Yeah, his voice. But, I, but what amazed me is his guy, his voice in Unsolved Mysteries. I couldn't imagine that show. It defined like a whole kind of cable voice. It yeah. was incredible. Yeah, he was an extraordinarily talented guy and a really great guy. And the other thing that people don't really know about him is, yeah, he was the heir to be basically Occidental Petroleum. He was like, wow, was one of the one of those actors that didn't really need to need the work. It's something like that. He was he came from a, a very privileged circumstance, but he was a great guy. That was a huge thrill to work with him. And then, you know, and then you have other actors like Leonard Nimoy bringing Galvatron to life. What was it like? Yeah, what's funny about Leonard Nimoy is, I th- I am sure I was there when it was recorded. I I, I would just. I have no really clear story from that. I sort of remember him coming in and you know, there were days who were crowded and there were days that weren't crowded. Orson Welles, very uncrowded day because there'd been a tape yeah. going around of Orson Welles ripping some you know, poor guy up one side and down the other. And I don't think anybody really wanted to be in that room mm-hmm. and have that happen to him. Or, or, so Orson Welles, as I recall, was a light day. Yeah. So the uh, so when you have these ki- these actors of this, caliber coming in like Judd Nelson's very much in the Brat Pack era he just done the Breakfast Club and he was yep. very very prominent and then you have one of the one of the great comedy legends in Eric Idle coming in and 
You have oh, Linus yeah, Stander and Monty like, Python guy. I got to work with two of them in the course of my career with him and John Cleese. That's from Monty Python. Yeah. Bill Eric Idol. It, no, no, it's, that was great. So what, so you have these actors coming in and did you have to basically just sit down, obviously sit down and explain the whole mythology and everything? Did they treat it as just like a toy project that, uh, that they weren't really, just kind of like coming in for a paycheck or were they just real, were they really invested in the overall mythology of it all? You're talking about a whole lot of different people with different personalities. They, I'm sure they perceived it and treated it different ways, mm-hmm. but I didn't have any feeling like people were treating it like, oh yeah, I got this uh, you know, crappy paycheck thing. Nobody behaved like that, especially yeah. like Orson Welles was great. He came in, he was interested in who his character was. It was a light day. So I remember talking to him, I'd been listening to a lot of radio shows because I was working on a pulp novel at that point. Oh, and nice. I was talking to him about the Mercury Theater and stuff, which I think he liked because not many people, I wasn't even 30 at that point. Not many people that age knew about Mercury Theater. And so he was great. No, I got the feeling that they were into it. As I said, guys like Robert Stack were just saying, look, I've never really done anything like this. And so I, I think was more nervous about it really than anything else. He nervous about doing a good job. I, I had no sense that he thought they were slumming it or that this was not a worthy thing to be doing with their time. I, I didn't get that impression at all. Oh, good. That's, that's, that's great to hear. No, there, was, there, was none of the, there was none of that atmosphere. These were good guys. Nobody had, was behaving like that. No. That, that makes my 10-year-old you know, self very happy to hear that. Yeah, no, that they were looking forward to doing be really respectful. I remember Judd Nelson, it's in the book, you read it, but I, talking mm-hmm. to him about the Miami Dolphins most of the time was, was <laughs> I talked to him about. So, you, so all these characters are being wiped out. It's, it was a really great, it was a really interesting way of discontinuing all these characters, which we don't really see that often now. And a lot of people are looking back and just saying how, oh, if it was, oh, if they shouldn't have killed Optimus Prime, but you said it in the book and it was exactly what I've been thinking for over 30 years, that without Optimus Prime's death, without these kinds of deaths, this movie doesn't last. It goes the way of GoBot's Battle of the Rock Lords. It just, you know, sits in that little spot in history. I have, I have like two almost opposite feelings about that. One part of me, okay, the part of me that is looking at it pragmatically thinks exactly that. And I believe that's a valid thing to think and that's true. Right. The other, there's another part of me that's thinking, the one thing that would, I feel bad about it, and now I don't lose any sleep over this, but, and that is, we made a deal with our fans that our shows were like safe. You could go to our shows and nothing really horrible was gonna happen. And, mm-hmm. and that's why it was okay for kids to be watching them because everybody knew that nothing, it was a pretty friendly environment. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you're killing off, you know, some of people's favorite characters. And some of them even dying off screen. Like you see RC pulling Windcharger's body like out of the yeah, fracas. Exactly. And, then, <laughs> just, exactly. and then you're like, all of a sudden he's lying down there. There's Wheeljack right next to him. It was just like... What is going on? Oh, no, <laughs> it, it, you know, that, that's incredibly harsh stuff. And it's so far it feels like it we broke our war. deal <laughs> with the fans. But it, you, so you have two conflicting thoughts about it. One is, if we hadn't done that, nobody would be talking. We would not, you and I would not be having this conversation. The, the other is that, that it's a harsh thing to do to the audience. All these, you know, we brought them back and everybody seemed to forgive us. And we're talking about Transformers right now. Absolutely. And so I'm so grateful for that. So we have this, so... There is another. There is another element of the movie that that so many people really remember, and it is the definitive 
ending of the whole conflict, starting from episode one between Megatron and Starscream. And yep. what, was the, what was that like to be able to put the final stamp on this? Because not only was there, not only was there Galvatron's moment when uh -oh. he completely decimated Starscream, but the moment, but just the moment that where you have Megatron, where you have Megatron and Starscream's arms and just goes, oh, how it pains me to do this. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah exactly, that, yeah. That, I mean, that I was, I was so giddy. I was so giddy. And I remember telling my friends, you know, like years later, that if Astro Train had any bit of desire, any sort of ambition, he would have just said, I'm the leader. You guys can all walk home. <laughs> I mean, I never, I guess I considered Starscream kind of a cartoon character, so I didn't really believe he was dead. Yeah. You and, know what I and, mean? You know, it's, it's yeah, oddly enough, Optimus was a big bummer. Starscream may be my favorite Transformer. Oh, he's okay, such a great character. I, I love really him. I think he was going to be dead, you know. Yeah. But the uh, getting to it's it seemed like a lot of people were much more accepting of the new Decepticons that were coming in because they basically were reconfigured versions of the old ones that they knew. Right. So you have you have Megatron in a new suit. And and then you have you have characters like Thundercracker getting turned into uh, Scourge, I remember. Right. Yeah, and then well, that uh, was that was a big debate whether it was Thunder Thundercracker or you know because I viewed the three F sixteens as a Trinity. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I, I do believe it was Thundercracker. Yeah, I think it was uh, Skywarp or something that became. Yeah, no, it, Skywarp was turned into uh, into Cyclonus. Yeah, um, we had a whole discussion of that, and I that that is what I've I've concluded is that Skywarp is Cyclonus because was, certainly. At, at the time, I'm cheating, but mentally at the time, I thought of them as a trinity. I had Thundercracker, Skywarp, and Starscream as a trinity. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, the fact that they had been there right from episode one, and it's uh, getting to basically just see their culmination, like how everything really wrapped up. And I would I be remiss. I figured about about killing Starscream, and just to say real quickly, is yeah. I think what I figured was that if Megatron can be brought back from virtually being dead, then so too could Starscream, that Unicron had that capability. But yeah. he was not likely to reconstitute Autobots. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So right. I, I would imagine you could have built a perfectly good episode using the head of Unicron to reconstitute Optimus Prime. But I, I, at that point, nobody wanted to hear anybody's opinion. They just wanted him back. And so speaking of Optimus Prime, getting to write that huge battle knowing that this was only about 20 minutes or so into the movie how did you feel the whole how that would go when you saw like this final battle that you knew was going to be like this really really a gut-wrenching moment not so much the death obviously uh, the death will will definitely touch on that but the the actual battle between him and megatron when you know like you have optimus saying megatron must be stopped no matter the cost and then so like he knows that no matter what, like he said, one shall stand, one shall fall. He knows that this is it. This is there. This is we're we're done messing around here. Like this is going to be our moment. They felt like we were we had set up for something big is about to happen. Definitely, yeah. we definitely felt like we we checked that box. And uh, yeah, you you read the book. The opening scene is exactly cracking that part of the story. And so you have that that really fun battle, basically just the two of them beating the hell out of each other. And finally you have that moment where Hot Rod intervenes, Optimus can't get a clear shot and Megatron basically just, just blows, him, blows him to hell right in the, in the, shot that he, the spot that he had already damaged. 
what was it like knowing that like how that was going to how that was going to play did you know like obviously what you were saying before that you didn't really have that sort of perspective that you knew that the fans would wind up having but you knew that it had to make it had to make some oh, yeah, sort of no, impact. we were bummed about it and we you know obviously we knew it was an impact scene we just didn't think that kids were going to lock themselves in, I, which I don't even know whether I believe that story. But we, right. we didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah. And, and that it would have, it would have, we, we just thought it would like, it would advance the story and people think it was cool. We didn't, we did not know we were traumatizing a generation, which we've been <laughs> accused of subsequently. And which you would definitely do a couple minutes later when you see, you know, their beloved Optimus Prime on a table. <laughs> I know. And like Perceptor giving him the, I fear the wounds are fatal. And then all of a sudden Optimus's eyes start to light up. Now, was that whole part of it with his eyes and the way that they go down and then the, was that as all far, Nelson Chin? Yes, the, I was going to yeah. say, as far as I can tell, that was 150% Nelson Chin. Who else? Oh, brilliant. You're killing a robot. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's how do you kill a robot? It's a robot. Yeah. And there's, that was just the sheer brilliance of Nelson Chin to make a robot dying that, that it feel that real. Cause when you think about it, it's, that could have felt really funky yeah, and, yeah. and really implausible and it didn't, and, or, or people could have not gotten it and it didn't feel funky because Nelson just played it perfectly. Everyone in that scene was just magnificent and a big part of it. For me, it, it felt like every element of it, from the lighting of the scene to the Vince DiCola score, yep. to everyone's performances, to seeing the to seeing the monitors go flatline and seeing the the light fade out of Optimus's eyes to turning gray and Daniel crying on him and everything it was just like, wow, we're really twisting the knife with with a lot of these uh, with a lot of these kids here. Did you feel like it was? Did you feel like if they weren't feeling anything, then they were really going to feel it? We were trying to, yeah, we were definitely trying to make the most impactful scene we can make. I know writer sits down and says, oh, yeah, I want to, I want to do a scene here that like, you know, it's kind of flat and doesn't, but what there's a difference between that and traumatizing people. And we had no idea we were doing that. Well, you're yeah. absolutely right. Like when I was writing, I couldn't know what Vince DiCola was going to do. I sure couldn't know what Nelson was going to do. Yeah. You know? And so everything we did was about, trying to you know, trying to do the best we could with our part of it and creating a world mm -hmm. where everybody else could be brilliant. Yeah, and that was definitely the case. And one thing, uh, taking a step back a little bit, back when I was first seeing these ads for Transformers the movie, the one thing that really stuck in my mind was the last thing that they say in the commercial, rated PG. And that immediately had me really interested. I was just like, okay, because uh, battle, because as I mentioned before about GoBots Battle of the Rock Lords, it had already come and it had already come and gone, and it was a G-rated movie by Clubhouse Pictures. So it's, that was just like its own little harmless little thing. But now all of a sudden we have this one, and it's rated PG. They did not. What are they going to do for that? A, a G-rated movie. They, that was viewed as poison, just a death to your death to your franchise. Yeah. And and they were absolutely certain. Whatever else they didn't know, they knew they didn't want to do a G-rated movie. And mm -hmm. that's why they put the you know, the expletive in there. Right. Uh, and it literally, I mean, that's one of those stories that sounds fake, but it's actually true. They mm -hmm. literally said, okay, we want to have somebody say shit in there so that we will not be a G-rated movie. And, and they didn't think that the that all the violence that they were doing with all the, like, the wiping out of the characters, they didn't think that was going to be enough to make it a PG? 
or they just really wanted to like really push it across the end zone at that point back then with movies that wouldn't because we got away with a lot of the stuff we did because these things were robots mm-hmm. and, oh and yeah, so, that, yeah and back then that may not have been enough mm-hmm. yeah so with that in mind you have this story that really sets up all these these new and interesting characters did you feel like they were that, that the ones that were coming in from the movie and then the ones you have going into the third season did you feel like they they had what it took to really get that sort of that same sort of feeling with the audience? You mean with the new? What we knew with the new characters, we're thinking about very pragmatically, and you know, just take a look at the the actual the reality of the toys and yeah, what the characters in the third season looked like. Yeah, and they were quite obviously to my eye, they were incredibly just space looking and science fiction yeah. looking. There was no robots in disguise in those characters. Right. You know, Cyclonus, yeah. the sweeps, Galvatron. Galvatron's not trying to look like a Walther PPK. Hot Rod, <laughs> we, I was talking about that somebody else today. Hot Rod was not a car that could insp- inconspicuously drive around on a street. Right. Springer is a triple changer who, you, know, you don't even know what it is. It certainly doesn't <laughs> look like anything that would be unnoticed on Earth. So almost by definition, we knew we were doing a space show at that point. We knew we were doing, we were going in a very different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 okay, just, we had to be. And yeah. yeah, as I was saying, sometimes you just, you can't get past just the reality of your, of your friend, of your the material. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, basically we decided to go with it. And we knew season three was going to be totally different. It's not Optimus, yeah. it's Rodimus. Mm-hmm. Rodimus would have, I was carrying a lot of baggage on him and he had to atone for feeling complicit in the death of Optimus and, and nobody really trusted him, the leader except the Matrix, but the Red Matrix selected him, basically yeah. Arthur's story. Mm-hmm. And so we knew all that stuff. And so we knew it was going to, and I was really looking forward to the idea of exploring space with these characters. We. Yeah. We just didn't need one more driving along a desert scene. We played that gag for two seasons. Yeah. And, and even the end of season two was getting more and more science fiction-y and space. Then you're all of a sudden meeting, you know, you're doing things like Vector Sigma and meeting. And, yeah, yeah. You're getting into mythology at that point. Yeah. And which, which is really what, I mean, I was hooked in the show from day one anyway. But at the same time, like getting those kinds of episodes, like all that really delved into the mythology, that really hooked me. And nothing hooked me more than the five-part miniseries that started season three. Because this was, from my understanding, the five first part of darkness. Yes. And which I, a lot of people like point to the return of Optimus Prime as like the, the sequel to Transformers movie. I'm like, no, no, it's five faces of darkness. Yeah, that I, is I totally the, agree. And it was that is the sequel. sequel to the movie. Yeah. And you, you and I fully agree on that. Yeah. And I remember... <laughs> I don't know why I knew this, but I was so dialed into the show that I knew that one particular Monday was going to be the day that part one would air. And I had drama club like right after school and I came right home. I skipped drama club with my mother teaching it. And and I knew that this was going to be, this was going to be rough, but it was going to be worth it, you know, because I get to finally tape part one. And this is like a couple months or so, like into the season. I just knew. Yeah, that because if, if yeah, unless you were really good with your VCR, if you didn't, if you didn't watch it, see it, then you were never going to see it. Exactly. And so I made a point to record all five episodes and I was so into it, especially with part four, which is when 
Rodimus short circuits himself. He enters the matrix. We learn about the, that was that. And like I said before, that influenced me long since then, because I was able to do my own take on that in, in my own book. Right. No, five, look, I mean, five face of darkness. I mean, if there's one unfinished business I have with transformers, other mm-hmm. than finding a uh, secret of Cybertron, it, it would be to see five face of darkness really given at that point, we just had technical problems. We had animation issues. We had mm-hmm. the other scenes and they never got animated. It was a mess. And there were morale problems and there were budget problems and everything else. It would be to go back and get that done properly. That was, oh, because that was, that was so it, much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it could be the sequel to the movie. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and getting sort of designed to be that. Yeah, and getting to learn like more about these characters that were basically there for, for what was it, like about 10, 15 minutes or so of the movie, then getting to know even more about them. One thing that was a little curious for me was it seemed like everything that had happened with the movie happened, happened fairly recent when Five Faces of Darkness came out. And I noticed that, like, uh, and not to nitpick, especially not to nitpick the actual writer of the miniseries that I know and love so much it's zero zero part of me is going to tell you it is an unflawed piece of work okay so don't worry about it so the the one thing that that had me a, a little like wondering what was going on with their memories was that like rodimus and cup were both just saying like i never like they, they don't look like any decepticons i know when they were like they were in they were with or they were on quintessa or just just one movie before that right. so those little bumps i definitely understand like that's but at the same time, it also seemed no, like I mean, that, they, that is the kind of thing that needs to be fixed. Yeah, but that, it, it also. I, but I would like another shot at that, so yeah. there is embarrassing stuff like that in there. But I, mean, I also, but I'm also thinking, just thinking of it right now, I'm wondering if maybe that was done that way in order to allow you to reintroduce the characters for the, all the people that didn't see the movie. Well, is that was the objective, but there have got to be more graceful ways to do it. We right. realized that, yeah, that, that if you hadn't seen the movie, you wouldn't know who the quintessence were. One definite, one, one little, uh, one brief little question. I noticed that, especially in, at the beginning of part two, I remember when Victor Caroli is giving the whole rundown of what happened in part one. We're hearing like the we're hearing the voices that it sounded to me like Judd Nelson was doing Rodimus during at first. Did he? stay to do like a, f- a few more episodes or something or was the no, no that was just somebody imitating J- judd nelson no they, he, he never came in to be the cast or anything no gotcha okay all right that that answers that that question i that's something that was on my mind for decades but that was i'm glad to hear that that was that uh that was the case just just to get like a definitive answer on that yeah no uh, um, no unless these were lines <laughs> that were supposed to be in the movie and and but that's no it was a yeah, you have to, you cannot overstate how talented these actors were. Yeah. And they were perfectly capable of imitating each other. Yeah. Like the job that, that, that the actors did in season three, I still stand despite like all the animation issues and despite the, the fact that it seemed like some episodes were aired out of order because like you had Starscream's ghost that first week of the actual episodes. And then a couple of weeks later, you had Thief in the Night, which set up everything that Octane was talking about. So I still stand by season three as a really, as a true like high watermark in that well, series. I, I, am, I am very happy to hear that because, you know, season three had, it's no secret, it had its detractors and uh, mixed reviews and everything else. And, and, but it, what is true is 
there are two things I think that are true about season three. The same reason I think that Optimus's death is why we're having this conversation right now is that almost everything that was done in Transformers late after after season three mm-hmm. was a reflection of season three. In yeah. other words, the comic books and everything else were really all season three things. Yeah, the way the really elaborate continuities that the, that they had, a lot of were really just almost just homages to Five Faces of Darkness. Most of what proceeded from Transformers into other mediums really came out of that. Yeah, yeah, and I one big thing that really that that really struck me as a devout viewer of the show and a reader of the Marvel comic, I was able to obviously separate the two like mythologies and everything. And one of the things that I remember thinking back, like I was in, cause I was in sixth grade, like around 87, 88 or so, when Marvel figured out to how to bring in the whole Power Master concept and use that to be the key to bringing Optimus back. And I remember just thinking, um, just thinking, man, if season three had gone on for just a little bit longer, then they could have brought in Optimus Prime as a power master instead of the way that they did. Because I, one of my favorites, one of my favorite episodes of all time is Dark Awakening. The fact yeah, that you guys Dark had- Awakening. You guys had the was you guys had the balls to do that with Optimus. I thought that was genius. What's funnier about it than that was that was in process. Yeah. Yeah. When we, when everybody got all upset about Optimus being dead and to some extent, the guys at Hasbro are acting like, what would possess you guys to do that? And it's like, guys, come on, you can't, you discontinued the toy. Now that's stop with this. Is that what we knew, but we couldn't tell anybody because they're already angry enough and upset enough that we had an episode in the pipeline where Optimus comes back as a zombie and they kill him again. <laughs> And it's such a good episode too. Everyone was so, everyone was so dialed in. And I just remember, I remember Daniel like walking through the halls and everything and just like Ironhide, Ratchet, Prowl, Huffer. It was like, those are all my old friends. It was just no, like, I it remember, felt I remember, cool. That was Valhalla. I remember plotting yeah. that thing and, and being really excited. I can't even remember whether I wrote it or not, but I feel like I did. Uh, I think it was credited for, what's well, Anthony Zalewski. Yes. Which I... But yeah, yeah, I, I remember plotting it and editing it. And that was like, that was probably if I had to pick a, a thing that was likely the last thing that I was super involved with on Transformers. Because remember, after, shortly after that, I was on, on Inhumanoids and then Vision. Yeah, you know, it was Dark Awakening. That was, yeah. that was, a, I felt, it, and even at the time, it felt like a swan song. It felt, it also seemed Sunbow was basically trying to take episodes like Dark Awakening and Starscream's Ghost and bump them up so that like they would be like really prominent in that first week of standalone episodes. Almost like they were basically just panicking because of the, the feedback from killing Optimus Prime and killing all these different characters. You can basically yeah, just say- Awakening is not the script I'd be running if I were panicking yeah. over, <laughs> over killing Optimus Prime. But, you but know, at the same means... time, like it's, it, I think what they were going for was the familiarity of it. Just saying, yeah. oh, there's Optimus. And I was actually talking about um, talking about this a couple of years ago with a friend of mine because we were doing a we were actually at a convention over here over in uh, St. Charles here in Missouri and terrible conf- convention because nobody promoted it therefore no one showed up but it was great for us because we were able to go around and mingle with all the different celebrities that were there 
And one of them was Greg Berger, the voice of Grimlock. Oh, Greg Berger is fabulous. I see him a lot. Yeah. He goes to a lot of a lot of conventions. He's Grimlock. He was lots of guys in 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 GI Joe. He he was just one of those. He's one of my favorite of of all those guys. I really like Greg. He, a lot. he was he was great. He he definitely humored myself and uh, and my friend by just uh, talking a little bit about Transformers. I didn't want to take up all of his time, but at the same time, it was great to have those moments with him. And I was able to gift him a copy of Excelsior as well. And show him the quote that I start that I started the book with because those who read the who've read the book would see that there are three quotes that start up the uh, start up the book. One is from the book of Matthew in the Bible. One is from the Lord to Arthur, and one is from Transformers. I, I know, I love that. I'm sitting there. <laughs> oh, I'm sitting here with the book of Matthew and Lord to Arthur. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, that was something that I just knew. Yeah, that was um, that was, was like I had stolen from from Churchill actually. I, and yeah, I remember when you mentioned that to me a while back, I had never heard that. I didn't remember you talking about that in any sort of commentary track or anything. So I was really delighted to to hear that. But it was the thing that King Arthur would return in Britain's Darkest Hour, which Churchill reprised in the Darkest Hour speech. Exactly. And uh, so one of the things that my friend and I were talking about was she was asking me, like, what did, you know, what would you have done? differently in season three just ask me like what would i have done and i said the one thing that i would have changed is i would have had optimus overcome the quintessence programming the way that he did but not kill himself at the end he would stick around he would still be blown he would still be damaged he would still be very much incapacitated but he would be there as like a sage for rodimus for him to shoot ideas off of. So that way he can basically be, play the role General Hawk played on in that season of G.I. Joe at the same time. So that yeah. way he can do that while Rodimus is out there in the trenches. And then, and then if only Hasbro had come up with the Power Master concept a little bit earlier, then they could have done a return of Optimus Prime that would have required some, some big catastrophic event that would require Optimus to get back in there and the only way for him to do it is to be a power master. And basically- well, Yeah, like, I, no, I, th I think, here's the deal, I think you nailed it. At that moment, everybody was so panicked. Yeah. That the, when people panic, they don't tend to think all that clearly and really think through the ramifications of stuff and look for opportunities. They just simply want the pain to stop. And I think that a lot of we what was the resolution on Prime's return was really an exercise in stopping pain. Yeah, and I, I, as a writer and everything, I hate to criticize work like that, but I just remember like revisiting the return of Optimus Prime, the two-parter, and I just remember just not being satisfied with it. You know, like it just felt like everything was out of continuity. It looked terrific. Like the animation style seemed like it was closer to the movie, but the episode itself, for me, it was just like it felt like an add-on because it felt like the the episode before that, the burden hardest to bear was the one that really cemented Rodimus as the true leader. And then yes. all of a sudden he just like hands the matrix back over to Optimus. Yeah, and it's like they, in the perfect world where there's the fourth season and everybody can really take a deep breath and do everything yeah. the way you'd be happiest about it after the fact. That's what would, what, you know, what would have happened is that, Optim that Rodimus would have had his own mission yeah, and I've gone off to do something else, but that that just was that would you know, it was the end, and everybody knew it and ended as best they could. Yeah, and like I said, I know, like the look that. of it was I, terrific. I, you know? I don't think that was the most satisfying thing ever done in the history of uh, filmed entertainment. 
Yeah, yeah. So you were saying there were some other properties that were taking up your time. And one of them I never really got into, but at the same time, when I was listening to that part of the book, I was like, why didn't I get in, get get involved with this? This sounds really cool, which was in humanoids. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. The humanoids was, you know, by far the weirdest, most violent, most mother unfriendly thing we ever did. Yeah. And humanoids was just it was what it was. It was it was it was a horror it was a horror show, unabashedly so. It was monsters from the center of the earth. I I remember it very fondly and loved it. That doesn't mean everybody did. Yeah. And you the I mean? uh, it just but the thing about the humanoids is that it, the show came out and the show did just fine. And and, mm-hmm. and people conflate this story and the visionary story and they're slightly different stories. But and the line did sixty million dollars the first year, which was in any real universe that's incredible. Yeah. But Hasbro, you know, had was doing so well at this point that just seemed oh, it only did maybe it was eighty million. It only did eighty million dollars. That's a serious disappointment and uh, we're shamed and, and all that. You have that you know, property do that now, but that's just, yeah. that, that was just where the world was then. And so anyway, in Humanoids, it only had its first season. Mm-hmm. Right here, I found, what I did find in my closet, because it was fairly shallow, is the first two episodes of what would have been the second season of Inhumanoids. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, yeah, we wrote the episodes we were going and then the season was canceled. So now I've got yeah. extra paper in my shelf. But uh, Humanoids is just, I just love that show. It was monsters and it was a an unabashed very happy to be just what it was monster show yeah uh, about monsters in the center of the earth and the earth core in my mind all these shows existed in the same universe now that's just in my mind and everybody else they hasbro is very important that they keep their franchises straight yeah so that there was no official anything to it of all being in the same universe uh, and, only- yeah, and you had a little bit, you had a little bit of Easter eggs to, you know, for those that were really paying attention. You had Hector Ramirez being on all the TV shows. You had, you had Marissa Fairborn, you know, in season three of Transformers as Flint's daughter. And well, and, was- and Saberjet was, who was an Inhumanoids character was Ace, who, who was oh. in a plane crash and got so badly messed up that they used his jet as body armor. So Ace from GI Joe. Ace from G.I. Joe, yes. Wow. Brad Armbruster, I think, was his, the, his, his actual name. Oh, and that's that so cool. The character in the humanoids. I yeah, did well, not we discovered, so cool. we discovered after the fact, we were trying to figure out how much crossover there really was. Yeah. And it really was Hector Ramirez. If Flint appears in, Flint and Lady J appear in The Killing Jar. Or, or was that covered? Yeah, yeah that, Flint yeah. was there. Flint was, I remember there was some, there was the, uh, uh, the monster that was masquerading as Flint. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we did get some Easter eggs in there. Yeah. And that was fun. Like being as someone who was so dialed into that, it was always great to see like those little Easter eggs, basically just like, Definitely a precursor to what the MCU would do decades down the road. And it sounds like, from what I'm hearing, last I heard is that uh, Paramount was looking to do a Hasbro universe on the screen. And they were talking about, they wanted to keep Transformers as its own universe, but they wanted to bring in, I think it was, was it G.I. Joe, Inhumanoids, Rom, uh, Mask, and was it Micronauts? All together in in, in a I, I, I would love to see that. And I hope that day comes. There yeah, like 
it, it, it would definitely be really cool to see the inhum, uh, Inhumanoids like fully realized busting out of the out of the yeah, i have no idea what the legal realities of that are or anything but yes that would be a very exciting thing to happen if it can be made to happen and there was also the unfortunately short-lived but a definitely very interesting concept of visionaries yeah they had, they had the same number of shows as in humanoids I, I they both had one season yeah I remember when, when I was in sixth grade at this point, like 87, and on a Sunday morning and seeing the opening and thinking like, oh, that's a cool commercial. And then all of a sudden, like, it starts up. I was like, wait, it's a show? <laughs> it's like, I had yeah. no idea. And then I was just like, okay, I'm watching this. And by this point, Transformers was always with me. But at the same time, there were no more new episodes. They had the three-parter, the rebirth, and then that was it. And then it was, G. It was all ending at pretty much the same exact moment. Yeah, you had G.I. Joe the movie coming out like the same time as the rebirth. And then you had, since I wasn't, I did not unfortunately watch Inhumanoids when it was out, but I did watch Visionaries. So it was that's an interesting really, that's time. That's really funny. Most people are the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, the, I don't know why I missed Inhumanoids. When you were maybe going to church. That is true. Yeah, that was the, yeah, that was my last year in Poughkeepsie. So yeah, I can definitely see that as being the case. That was, that was the weird thing about that show because it was a Sunday show. Yeah. And, and so, you know, most of our products weren't, weren't Sunday products. So like, looking back at all of this as a way to summarize all of this, it really was an incredible time for all this, all these new, all these new properties coming out. Like in, in the 90s, you had, you had some great quality cartoons, animated series that, uh, that were you know, like you had Batman, you had X-Men, you had Spider-Man, you had you know, like all these different ones. But all those were working off of decades of stories. In Batman's case, more than 50 years worth. With this, yeah. you got to actually go in and create the mythology as you were going. What was that yes. whole experience like? Well, that was really cool. Obviously, we had the toys, and it was supported by that, and we were cognizant of that. That's why. That's why I was talking about all the the comic book guys and everything, and how important they were at all this, because their comic book guys are really well suited to continuities and mythologies and all that. That's what comics are. Yeah, and that's why they were so essential to this whole thing. Yeah, it's it really is like something amazing to to see like the way that all of this really came up and really just so many people can look at it as just, oh, these are just half hour toy commercials, but they were so much more than that. And they have stood a test of time and the people have been talking about them long after the fact, like witnesses. Yeah. It really, yeah. And there, and the fact that you have six Transformers live action films out there now yep. and everyone's got their own take on th like on, on those movies and they're, so many of them are all just damn you, Michael Bay and everything. I was really taken by I, I am I just, much more sympathetic towards Michael Bay than most people. This is a hard franchise. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I, like, I was, like, I really enjoyed the first, the third, and the fourth one. The second one was a mess, but that was a Writer's Guild thing. The fifth one was a real mess, but that was all new writers trying Which to start up was, a whole universe. The fifth one? Fifth one was uh, The Last Night. The one where Optimus became Nemesis Prime for a few minutes and yeah, had the whole King yeah. Arthur element that kind of came out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden they find out that Earth is Unicron. And it was like, okay, it sounds like you guys are throwing a lot of stuff at the wall here. That one soured on me, unfortunately. But then Bumblebee came out and it was so charming and it was so fun that it brought it back to a really good feeling. So with that in mind, and like you have, you still have these 
characters coming out in toy form. And you had the two, the two G.I. Joe movies. The second one I thought was a, a blast. I had so much fun with that one. So you have these sort of properties that are still coming out with action figures and toys and stuff, but we're not seeing the kind of boom that the 80s had. It seemed like they're uh, a lot of the video game market is really swallowing oh, all that video uh, game momentum. And streaming and, and childhood itself has changed. Yeah. I think. And I, I don't want to sound like some old guy bewailing the good old days, but I mean, to some extent I am. I'll you know, say it. I'll say the good old days. <laughs> yeah. The childhood's changed and kids don't have, like my kids didn't, I mean, my son had Transformers and everything and mm-hmm. played with them for a time. It, 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 it was just a different era. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it and became, it became a very different time, and and they just they just weren't toys like there were then, and television became a different thing, and special effects came along, and it just became a different time. Yeah, and, and, uh, you know, but- and that's part of what's magical and why you want to look back at it is. You, but I also believe, and I'm mm-hmm. actually doing some stuff that I can't really talk about right now, but that mm-hmm. that will I hope revive it, that will bring back a whiff of that world. Oh, that'd be great. That would be so, that would be so great to see those shelves lined up with with all these different types of properties that that kids can really sink their teeth into and really claim as their own the same way that so many of these I did before we wrap things up because I could honestly keep talking to you for three or four hours no, but no, no, I know no, that big. but but I but I want to I definitely want to touch on the moment that you uh, there there were a couple of moments that that you worked that uh, you're working on other properties that really that really sparked my interest while I was listening to listening to the book, and the first one was Garbage Pail Kids. So what was it like being yeah, involved that in that? Disaster. That that was not the high point of my career. That, you know, yeah. I, yeah, but that was what came immediately after Sunbow, and mm-hmm. in fact, yeah, I was I wrote Visionaries and Garbage Pail Kids about that was almost the same time. Yeah, because we knew the toy shows were shutting down. Much to, to Tom Griffin and Joe Bacall's credit, we sort of we we knew there were bad orders for the next year. We basically knew the office was shutting down. Mm. And, and a guy named Michael Chase Walker called me up and said, "Hey, I'm working on this show." He and he was the guy who brought Pee Wee's Play Playhouse to Saturday morning. Oh wow! Um, and yeah, now when he called me up, I knew he was a big guy and a Bond guy, and he knew Cubby Broccoli and all that. And I thought. Oh, I'm gonna get to do James Bond, and then I found nice. out the garbage bail. Uh, wasn't that wasn't that around the time when they were doing James Bond Junior? Junior came after that, and I believe Michael was involved in it. Okay, okay, but uh, don't quote me on that. I'm not positive. I'm trying to get him on the show. I've been trying to because I, I want to have one last one last show where we wrap all the stuff up before the book comes out, and I'm trying to get yeah. him on. But I, I have I would have to ask him that. I I do not know whether whether he was involved in 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 James Bond Junior, but it would not surprise me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And when right around like the tail end of the book, you you mentioned working with Steven Spielberg. And a funny thing that you mentioned in the book was that he you didn't really you didn't really talk too much about the stuff that you had worked on in the past. However, not only was Spielberg an executive producer on the Transformers films, but he actually told a story like behind the scenes about how he would get the toys and play on the floor with his kids with them. I'm surprised he didn't mention that at all, knowing what uh, what kind of well, credit. Well, here's the thing is that, what, I think I said this in the book, that at the time, there was nothing cool about having worked on Transformers. Now, movies were viewed as a very different medium than TV. Yeah. And so people were saying, listen, don't, don't really talk about that stuff, okay? Just not talk about it. 
Uh, of course, yeah, that is why it was, it was very ironic to me when decades later, Steven Spielberg's the producer on it. So you have, so you've, as you were saying before, you have this book, The Games Master, but you also have a series, uh, you have a series going on yourself, almost like a companion to that, where you bring in guys that, uh, that you've worked with in the past. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, I basically was doing it just because the book was coming out and to promote the book. And also just, you know, be totally honest and just to hang out with these guys. Yeah. And yes, that's, uh, the, you're talking about the, uh, the streaming thing. Yeah. And where can uh, my listeners find you? Well, uh, I, I will do it again next Sunday, and it may stay on for a while. Paul Dini and I have been talking about that because we both had fun doing it, and mm-hmm. uh, so it, we may it may come back in some form after uh, we're done with after the Games Master shows on. Nice. And uh, where can my listeners find uh, find you in general, like on social media? Oh, Facebook. Yeah. yeah, the easiest place to find me is on Facebook. And I, I, it basically all conversation has been about Transformers and G.I. Joe and stuff like that. Yeah, it'll probably change after I get done, yeah, after the book comes out. But yeah, it, but that's really the place to find me. I really hope that all of you really take this time to not only really enjoy this whole episode, because this really has been just a dream come true for me, just being able to fanboy out with like with someone who is responsible for so much of my childhood and but at the same time being able to coming coming off of uh, listening to the book itself i really hope that all of you take the time to listen to the audiobook read the paperback read the kindle however you get it just get it and and i yeah thanks a lot yeah and i really hope that all of you that that remember this time as fondly as I do. Really enjoy just losing yourself back in this time. It really was a magical time. And for I'm so thrilled that it is as, as it has become. And I couldn't be more grateful to Flint for coming on board on this show. It's been just an absolute, like I said before, it's been a dream come true to be able to interview him and really get into the heart of all of this great stuff that kept me going for so many years. And so I hope that, that all of you have enjoyed this as much as I did. And I really hope that, that all of you make a point to get this book when it comes out. And so for Flint Dilly, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward, and I'll see you next week. Onwards to all are one. 